So a week ago, we opened, well, two weeks ago, I opened up a can of good worms, and we started talking about this topic called shame. Now, I kind of knew what was beginning to happen about us being here for a while, so I was able to pack in a lot of stuff and then leave you hanging like, because I knew I'd be able to have the next several weeks actually unpack all of that information. So I kind of did it to you on purpose. At the same time, there's just a lot of information um, that ties into this. And I, I told you that we, I'm going to give you a little bit of recap of some things that we discussed to put things back into a frame of reference for you. And we discussed at the beginning that what really was triggering this is how a person's life transforms and also how our health, our soul, and everything ties into this idea of shame. And how when condemnation and the shame element of our old nature that actually isn't a part of your new nature, but the remnants want to cross over, when that is eradicated, to receive from God becomes all of a sudden this easy thing that's always been there. So a lot of times we've struggled to receive from God, we've struggled with things in life, we've struggled through areas, and we struggle because we don't quite know what is that thing that's holding us back. When it really, when you get to the heart of it, it's shame. And we talked about how in Genesis, before the fall, man and woman walked through the garden. You know, some people say they had this glow around them or whatever. I don't know. They could have been buck naked. It doesn't matter. They didn't have shame about what they were. So there was no perception of even looking at the natural man because their mind was on a different source. But the moment that Lucifer could trick Eve into believing that God was holding out on you, and to begin looking back to the dirt, the thing they were formed out of, to be a supply to their new life, all of a sudden inferiority and, and insecurity began to step in and shame began to take root in their heart that God actually was holding out on them, that there was something about them that God wouldn't give to them. And that's when shame. See, when you have a child and they know they have the glory of the family, they know they have the life of the family, they know they have the blessing of the family, they don't walk in insecurity towards the family. But the moment they believe that there's something that can hold them at bay or hold them lower, then all of a sudden, they begin looking to other things to build that up. It's just written within our DNA. That's how we're designed. And so the, all Lucifer had to do is convince them that they were just a little bit lower than what they were, and all of a sudden, they begin looking to natural sources, their environment, to bring a new identity. And that is lust. See, we look at lust as just the, the sexual immorality or this thing. Lust is the craving inside to get that value re-added to begin to go back up. I mean, that's really what it is. It's this craving for this outside force to come in and fill this. And we become more desperate. The more shame that's there, the more desperate we become, and it kind of fuels itself. And so we have this... this this substance going on in Adam and Eve, and so they partake of the tree, and all of a sudden it says, the tree looked good to eat. They never looked at the tree before like that. And all of a sudden the tree had a whole different personality, and now all of a sudden glistened. It's like that black and white movie, everything's black and white, and you have this glowing Wizard of Oz tree that pops up, right? You guys know what I'm talking about, Wizard of Oz, it's black and white at the beginning, it turns color in technicolor after they go into this new land. It all became different. There was a whole new glow to the tree. And so it's because their perception of how they viewed themselves changed and all of a sudden they begin looking 
for who they were. Now sin has an influence over them. So lust, when lust is conceived, it brings forth sin. And when sin is finished, it brings forth death. And that's what took place. So now all of a sudden this shame gets passed on through generations. So I want to just see that because it says this. Um, an author was talking about shame, a, a psychologist. She says, shame drives two big tapes in our mind, never good enough. And if you can talk it out of that one, the next one is, who do you think you are? Right? We talked about that two weeks ago. Shame, the thing to understand about shame is it's not guilt. Guilt is different. Guilt Shame is a focus on self. Guilt is a focus on behavior. They're different. Shame is I am bad. Guilt is I did something bad. Now there's two types of guilt. We're not going to talk about this this week, but I want you to know even with guilt, there's a problem. There's external guilt, which is damaging. There's internal guilt or an internal awareness or an internal conscience that says I've got to get this fixed. That's a healthy conscience, a healthy something's wrong. It's like, okay, let's go get this fixed, and we go deal with it. But it's healthy. It brings life. An external where I come to say, you're guilty of doing this. You need to fix it. So now you go into a mode of trying to fix something. That's damaging because it begins implicating shame because someone else is the measurement of your value. We'll talk about that another week. So we talked about Adam and Eve bringing forth shame and one thing I really have noticed and you know it's in America too it's in every culture but when you leave your own culture and you become more sensitive to how things are being done in another place you see things more clearly so in Thailand and in Asian culture shame is a big big deal shame is a bigger deal than sin no one really cares about the sins they care about the shame you don't dishonor your family you don't dishonor your father so it doesn't matter if your father is willing to send you halfway around the world. It doesn't matter what you do to bring the thing that your father wants you to go do it. Even if the thing you have to go do is a shameful, more shameful than not doing that. Because your identity is tied to that. So now all of a sudden you have a culture that is driven by shame. You have a hierarchy. You have a class system. You don't step out of the class. You don't step over into this area. You don't step over in this area because you don't want to bring shame. It's almost like asking for directions there because no one will tell you they don't know. Because if you don't know, that's shameful. So they give you directions. So you want to go verify that two, three, maybe four times to find out actually how to get there. Because they're not telling you the truth because they'd rather lie to you than shame you. Be shamed. So therefore, the fruit of what they do, they don't, lying's not a problem because everyone lies. Stealing's not a problem because everyone steals indirectly. You just don't do same, something that brings shame onto your life. Because they're bred in shame. They're, they live in shame. They, everything is guided by shame. All their motivations are shame-driven. I need to succeed so I don't bring shame on my family. I need to do this so I don't bring shame over here. I need to do this so I don't have shame. And so now all of a sudden you have a culture that's even works-driven. So Buddhism is a, is a, is a shame-driven religion, which all religions, religions are shame-driven. All of them are. Anything that requires a transaction for your life is shame-driven. For instance, if you do this act, I'll do this act. 
If you don't do this act, I will withhold my part because you didn't perform for me. We use shame for that. Now, you'll have one individual that could care less than, fine, don't do it for me, I'm still going to move on. See, shame doesn't have an effect. You need shame in order to hold that tie together. The glue of the transaction relationship is shame. Because the moment someone is free from the shame, the transaction doesn't work anymore. They'll just say, I'd rather just go without than have that. I'm going to move on this direction. So the other side of shame is now you're no good, so you actually check out of life. So one is you spend your life pleasing because you're no good, so you need their validation. The other becomes you become so angry at it, you try to dominate it the other direction. But either one, shame is the cycle that is circling this whole piece. And shame and sin, sin is the influence in our heart. It's the thing that kills us, but shame is the catalyst that allows that to come on in and to take root in our heart. So we talked about how shame can be seen as being Basically, shame can be seen as being separated from your source of life, not having the proper value that you were intended to have when you were created. So the moment your value changes or you perceive your value to change, you're living in shame. That's what shame, or that's what shame is trying to creep into your heart, I should probably say. One psychologist, uh, Stephen Poulter, he says, a defective inner feeling that is not based on any type of behavior, event, reality, or action, shame is a free-floating emotion that can at any time and any moment overtake its victim. It is something that you don't even know when it comes. You're having a great day, and the next thing you know, you think you're just this pathetic mess that can never accomplish anything. And you're like, and you're believing it, and you're, you're wondering... Where did this come from? And when you start recognizing what's happening, you could step back and look at it and go, why am I feeling, how did I get to this place? How, how did this become a truth in my mind? How, how did this all of a sudden start resonating in me? And the reason this becomes important of dealing with what shame does is because it will help you understand what grace does. See, if we don't really understand what God is trying to apply his love and his grace to, we will have a hard time understanding how do we apply it in our everyday life. You know what I'm saying? It's almost like, you know, in, we, you could play um, an instrument and you could be a good, you can, you can play it, it sounds good, but if you don't really know where the application goes, am I going to be in a band? Am I, am I, where, does it, where does the French horn fit in the big sym symphony? It kind of loses its place. We don't know where to apply it. You're great at the French horn, but you don't know where it actually fits into the big scheme of things. So then you just sit at home playing the French horn, but no one ever gets to enjoy it. But actually, if we begin to understand how the French horn ties into the other instruments of an orchestra, then all of a sudden now there's an application that we can actually put it into. Does that make sense? So what we're doing is we want to understand what was broken in humanity so we understand what was being fixed. I had the pleasure of two lights going on in my car. One was the brake light, and the other one was the battery light. And the car wasn't running. So I'm driving down the road, and I'm not as brilliant as Jason in trying to figure out everything, because he probably would just go, oh, that's da-da-da. I wasn't there yet, but I wasn't ashamed. So we pulled the car over, and we we're going to have it towed. And I'm like, no, let me think about this for a minute. So we get the car off the side, and we're pondering it. and. I'm starting to Google things, and that's not always helpful. 
So it's this torque converter thing, and all of a sudden people are talking about the price of what it's going to cost. I'm like, oh, dear Lord, it's not going to be that. So we get it. And so I'm driving. I, we leave it there, and I'm just kind of pondering it and thinking about what can this be. And the thought came to my mind, hook your, hook, jump the car, hook your battery cable up, and then try seeing if it will back up and go forward because it wouldn't good drive. Well, and it did. And then it kind of realized this has got to be electrical, and we found out the battery actually shorted out the alternator, and we just replaced the two, and boom, everything's working great. Right? But the problem was there was a time when that would happen, and it would overwhelm me of how everything just became bad. So there must be something wrong with me. Now, how do you get there's something wrong with you from a car breaking down? How do we get there? But I've been there. Has anybody been there? Something happens and all of a sudden it's about you and there's no correlation between the two pieces. But you can't solve the problem. You can't fix the problem. So there must be something wrong with you. Because a normal person would be able to handle that. Right? But I'm no mechanic. But I'm wise enough now to don't let it affect me. And guess what happens? All of a sudden God starts speaking things to you to give you understanding. I'm still no mechanic. But I wasn't able to do something out of panic mode that would have cost me hundreds of dollars when it only cost me a battery and alternator. Versus the toe, the analysis. Because if Jason's not there, then he's gonna, you're going to get charged for the toe. You get charged for the anal analysis. The nine other things that they think that you should use will, that will break in another 50,000 miles. Then you have to explain why you don't want that done, but you're really not smart enough to say why you won't get done, and you got a $2,000 bill later when you really only had to spend $275. <laughs> and no one's lying to you. You're just not smart enough to realize, okay, wait a second. We don't need this all done today because I'm still going to need maintenance. I mean, if I do it all today, does it mean I never need maintenance again on the car? Well, no, it can still go bad later. And you probably should come, right? It just doesn't end. So... But there was a day when that stuff would happen and there's something wrong with me. And all of a sudden the defeat comes in and you either want to check out or you do dumb decisions or you handle it wrong. That's not a good place to be. That's shame. Shame has its roots in the parent-child relationship. And this is why. It's not against us parents because the problem with having kids is they don't really give you a manual of how they're actually supposed, supposed to go. It's the one thing that you can buy with, that you can get pretty easily without a manual. But it's the most complicated thing on the planet. Children. Right? Because now you have to deal with yourself while you're dealing with them. And then when you don't want to deal with yourself, they're going to get dealt with the way you're feeling about yourself. And so just you guys need to go to school. Right? I mean, this is the thing that starts happening. So a lot of times, inadvertently, we pass on our shames to our kids because dealing with our shame is just too frustrating to deal with. So we just... Move it on to them and let them deal with it. We don't do it on purpose. It just is the way it is. So I want to free the parents this moment that, you know what? You probably screwed it up. You did. And I probably will find out in all my great learnings that I did too. So I'm going to trust God the Father to actually bring them to real life. So I'm going to keep guiding them into their father so that their real identity can be handled so they can, they can actually like to sit with me later on in life. We'll just go with that point, right? Because that's really what our goal is because otherwise we keep passing on the same problem. Because shame is hereditary. It's the one thing that can be passed on. It's the one thing that can be transferred. And the problem, they did an interesting study is that they took two families, one completely dysfunctional, one non-dysfunctional, 
and they took two kids and they realized it wasn't the dysfunction of the family that hurt the kids. It was their ability to process the dysfunction. So the moment we begin letting our kids learn to think and we learn to think and we learn to process and we step back from a right place, you can actually process out of every situation you're in and you don't have to absorb it. That's life. Now we have to start having victory. So there's victory in all this. So you kids, you, you can be free and parents and you were a kid once too and so there's a hopefulness that we can learn to unpack and process this information. That's why we're going to take about five weeks to go through all this stuff. So, we talked about how shame has four different symptoms. There's more symptoms, but four of the key ones are lack of focus, lack of motivation, emotional immaturity, and the fear of failure. Those are all the stems, four made symptoms of shame. Now remember, shame, psychologists can't tell where it comes from. It's not something that is, it's there. Like a cancer cell. Like can't, when they study cancer, cancer cells apparently live in your body. It's just when they're activated is where the problem comes in. We just don't know when they're activated. So shame is kind of that free-floating in your fallen nature, in your old man, in your old heart, has this floating shame because you're disconnected from the source that you were designed for. Therefore, you're spending your life trying to find your identity from something else. So once you're disconnected from your source, you begin looking to environments, people, something to empathize with you and validate you. That's what happens. So when we begin getting into that cycle, we're going to have enough information to realize that's not me. I can actually step back out of that world for just a moment and say, wait a second. That's not who I am. And the more we can disarm what we're no longer when we're born again, we can start dealing with it from a different mechanism. So we talked about, amen. So we talked about, we went and used the example in Numbers, how the children of Israel are getting ready to go into the promised land. How Caleb and Joshua says, yes, we could take this land. The children of Israel said, you got to be kidding. There's giants in the land. So I'm just telling you, every promise God gives you, he gives you to you knowing you're a son and daughter. Therefore, the enemies have a different look to you. If, you, if he gave it to you from the point that you're still a slave, which is a shamed individual, slavery was a mark of shame. If you still to get the promise from a shamed individual, the enemy will always be overpowering and you'll be angry at the one that's trying to send you into the promise. But the promise was not, the place of rest had enemies who lived in it. In fact, all the enemies of Israel, except for two, lived in the promised land. Just a thought for a moment when you're looking for, oh, if I can just get into my promise, I, it'll be so much easier. It will only be easier if you get this right. Because the reality is it will actually look worse than what you came out of. But the benefits will be a thousand times greater. Because here's what happens to the enemy in your promise. When you go into your promise, here's what the enemy does. Joshua 1, 9 through 11 says, this was Rahab's view of the children of Israel. So Rahab the harlot in Jericho, her view of the children of Israel and how the people viewed the children of Israel from their side. I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us. The terror of Israel has fallen on the land. Because, oh, on the land, and all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you, 
And when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sion and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our heart melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you, for the Lord your God is with you. The God of heaven and earth. In other words, their great strength relied on the land that they lived in. It relied on the environment that they created and the value people in that environment put towards those things. All their gods were designed to get better, for, better crops, better lands, better things. All their gods helped them get better things. This God gave them the thing. The source was here, and this was the byproduct of the source. So they were now connected to God. They were connected. The children in the promise were connected to the earth. So all of a sudden, when a different source comes in, the enemy became afraid. And when people, we're going to talk about over the next couple of weeks, the, the view of shame from a person who is shamed and how they look at things, a person who is being shamed but is free in how they look at things, and what it looks like to live from Jesus' perspective, and those that have been walking free from shame in the midst of being shamed. And I want you to see all different views so that way as you're looking at this going, wow, that's what's going on. Oh, wow, that's how I respond. Oh, wow, that's what's taking place. Because the moment you can start processing in your heart when things come your way, you can now start disseminating the voices. We don't know the voices because we think some of these things are God. So all of a sudden, we look at life with all these voices happening. Which one's God? Which one's me? Which one's my old past? What's going on? Who's talking? And we don't know how to dissect what's happening. Jesus learned how to dissect the voices. That's what happened in the wilderness. He learned when the devil was talking. He learned when he was talking. And he learned when God was talking. And when you can start deciphering the voices, now we can start making decisions in the midst of our problem. So the people in the promised land had built their lives on what they could produce from the dirt, and when a greater source came, they could not match up. So shame crippled those people. The shame came on to them, and now they were living a life of shame as the Israelites were coming in, but the enemy did everything to convince the Israelites that they were shamed. And we wonder why we're waiting on God to do something. And he's waiting on you to just accept the fact of his view of you. Because once the view changes, once your perception of how he looks at you changes, so does everything. Because everything's already been prepared. He can't do more against the enemy. He's already done it. He's already caused them to be in fear. The enemy's already in fear of you. He just needs you to believe what you are. That's why shame keeps running. And that's why even in Christianity and in religious circles, it runs rampant because it keeps you under because you're not quite good enough yet. I had a conversation with a man, great man. I'm listening to him, just influential. I was just, I'm like, wow, I'm just enjoying your conversation. You just carry a presence about you. You're warm, you're, you're strong. I mean, there's just so much. I'm just really admiring this guy when I'm talking to him. And afterward, he said, I go, so what do you want to do? He goes, well, I'm just waiting on God. I think I missed my opportunity to do something. And I'm like, well, what are you waiting for? Well, you know, I'm, I'm back in church. and I'm just kind of waiting to, you know, for, for the pastor to say I can be something. And 
And I sat back, and you know, there's so many things I wanted to say, and I didn't, but I'm sitting there saying, how did we get to the point that God became subject to another man's opinion? Where, where did we get to the point that we've started looking to another man to validate us? And I'm not talking about respecting people. I'm not talking about honoring people. I'm not talking about a, having a healthy wisdom when someone's been there before. Let's listen. I'm talking about where they get to choose who you are. Where did we get to that point? And I don't even put it on the pastor. Where did we get in that spirit that we're coming and looking for the validation so we can be? We were never designed to be like that. And what happens is that shame causes the insecurity which is now coming in. Then you get an insecure pastor that starts hoarding over the people and telling you how to vote, how to think, how to do, how to function. Versus you can think. Let me show you how to make a wise decision. Let me show you how to hear the right voice. Let me show you how to function when all this is happening. And I trust my Father to keep you and make the right decisions. Otherwise, what do we believe? I, give, I introduce the Spirit of God, the Spirit that caused Jesus to be able to do everything that He did, the greatest Spirit that came on Samson and He destroyed a hundred men, a thousand men, this great power. And I even give it to children. And then I say, but don't do anything. You need to do what I need to tell you to do. Why'd you give them the Spirit? Why not just hold off until you're done with them? How? Do, because we're afraid of what they'll do. We're afraid that they'll be like us. We're afraid that they'll go down the bad path like we did. Well, some of you went down a bad path and turned out great. So I guess God was good enough for you. Can He be good enough for them? We have several weeks. We'll, we'll get to all this. Shame produces a people that spend their lives in pursuit of acceptance and approval from those who have power and authority over them. Ponder nations and peoples and groups that are dominated by a dictator. Think of religious orders Think of things where people aren't allowed to think and the shame that's put on them because you're insignificant and you need me to make you valuable. Now we actually even use it against them. And we often embrace it. This is why Jesus, or Paul says, do your work to God and not to men. He wasn't saying, that wasn't for a pastor to get you to go clean the toilets and still have some honor in it. Clean the toilet stinks. I'll be honest. It doesn't matter who, what job it is. It doesn't matter why you're doing it. It's just a stinky job and no one really wants to do it. It just has to be done because someone has to do it, right? And it's usually mom. But mom isn't everywhere. So someone else has to step up to do it, right? But no one really wants to do it, so we try to find a way to make you feel proud about cleaning that toilet. We try to find some, we even get you the, the, the golden janitorial road. There's nothing wrong with being a janitor. I think we've all been a janitor. And it's not even a promoted place because I find that even as I get older and I feel I'm more honored, I still got to go clean the darn thing. You don't ever get promoted out of cleaning the toilet. It's just part of the deal. Everybody talks about the house, but try having without a bathroom. Right? So here we are in the, in the midst of this shame-filled world and now we're trying to get someone else to do the thing we don't want to do so we try to bring honor to it. How about, guys, we need help and someone's got to clean the toilet and I, I, I don't really want to. Can you do it? 
Okay, we can, but it is an honorable thing because the person, you know, there's a lot of people that are going to be sharing in that experience from what you, what you have given to us. In fact, you will influence more people's lives by cleaning that toilet than most people will speaking. Just telling you. Just telling you. But anyway, back to the point is we get into this, this idea of trying to bring value to these low jobs. How about we all have to do bad jobs and we all get to do good jobs? How about that your value is because you're a son and daughter and when you honor your kids, you will have them do hard things and you'll have them do beneficial things, but we don't do things to make them earn their way up to be the right position. When you, get these toy, when you, when you do all these things right, I'll let you sit at our table. Until then, you're in the corner. Because that's how we work in our family. When you're little, you got to start out at the bottom. So you have to sit, you clean up all the crumbs off the bottom of the floor. You can sit under the table if you want. You can have the crumbs. And then when you start growing and maturing and handling things more properly, and you can handle this great responsibility of being a son of mine, I'll let you maybe sit at the table. And then you can move down the table and you can get closer to me. We see this picture all the time. And all of a sudden, God says, I want to be your father because only a father can break shame because he has to bring glory to a child. Only the father can actually re-break this cycle because it's inbred into you. That's why God's the father. So when the father comes and says, my glory is on you, he sits you immediately at the head of the table and then we just deal with the rest of the stuff together. He starts you at the top and lets you move back. That's glory. And when you're glorified, you don't mind cleaning the table because you're caring more about the other people because you're already taken care of. You're already satisfied. You're already positioned. You're no longer warring and fighting and striving because you're there. And once you're there, you want to help everybody else get there. When you're not there, you will control, manipulate, and dominate, judge, do all the junk that we're in this world. And then what happens, we have a group of people that are so condemned, they rise up and create groups to deal with their own brokenness and make everybody else deal with it. And we wonder why, why is all this happening is because we haven't dealt with the core of why Jesus actually came. He came to break the shame and grace his children, bring something that will change who you are so we don't have to go and just accept what we were and have a special club for the what we were club. It becomes a quest for empathy and validation for their current perception of life. For their current perception, that's what happens with shame. Because we can't stay in it very long, so we end up cloistering around. I love what uh, Theodore Roosevelt says. He said, this is a man that was pampered by his mom. And he finally says, I'm going to go out. And he went out west so he can become a man. And he wanted to face the hardships of going out west. That was when the west was hard. Now it's California. But, but when the west was hard, he wanted to go out and find out. He wanted to become a man. He says this, it is not the critic who counts. It is not the man who sits and points out how the doer of deeds could have done things better and how he falls and stumbles. The credit goes to the man in the arena whose face is marred with dust and blood and sweat, but when he's in the arena, at best he wins, at worst he loses, but when he fails, he loses, and when he loses, he does so daring greatly. In other words, it no longer now becomes, my identification is no longer going to be what's on the outside. The spectator no longer has an opinion about my life. It's now what I'm going to release on the inside of my life in my arena where I'm at. That's what's now going to be my defining moments. And it's not about the winning and the losing. It's what I can give towards that. See, because in Psalms 3.2, he says, How long, O you sons of men, will you turn my glory 
to shame? How long will you keep taking what I'm trying to give over you and, and turning it to shame? How are they turning it to shame? He says, how long will you love worthlessness and seek falsehood? How long will you keep looking to someone else's value opinion of you and quit taking my glory and not letting me give it to you? How long will you keep seeing yourself, your worthlessness, and getting someone else to agree with your worthlessness and create a company when I'm trying to bring you over into my glory and declare something over you? Why do you keep turning my glory to shame? That was God's passion. And David discovered this. Says this in what happens with shame is it breeds transactional relationships that we talked about earlier. We look at what we can get out of others and their environment to validate ourselves rather than looking at their contribution or looking at others' contribution to the development of others and the environment of others. Let me re rephrase that. I don't like how I just wrote that. Transactional relationship that is formed is all about what I can get from you. What can I get from you to make me better? What can I get? If I'm a great leader, I'll be honored. If I do this great, I'll be honored. If I do this great, that's why I really have a lot of respect for Pastor Ken. Working in circles of pastors, the competition is the first time you go to one of the, the pastor's conferences, hey, how are you doing? My name's so-and-so. So how big's your church? How many people you got running on Sunday? You got any programs going on? How many services do you do? Great, Ken. So what do you have? What do you do? Where are you going? How big is it? How big's your vision? Da, 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 da. And I am thankful as why our friendship probably has grown is he's not like that. He doesn't buy into that. But it is a struggle because we live in a world that's constantly what's your measurement, what's your measurement, what's your measurement, what's your measurement. And then you're asking, well, who's measuring? Well, it's based on this group because you're in this group. Okay, I'll go over to this group. Now it's based on this group versus how about I'm doing exactly what God told me to do and the passion that he told me to do it in and God's taking care of everything and people's lives are being changed. What are you doing? right? Transformationals, I'm more concerned about your development. What can I pour into you that your life can grow versus what can I get from you so I can look good? See, if you guys succeed, then I succeed. I coach soccer. Let me just tell you, I don't like losing. It's not fun to say you had a season that not losing and you always have to come up with a different reason for why it was successful. But the reality is you can't, you, you got a group of kids that are doing something and you can only do so much. So what is the reason that you're there? I can either help them transform that this could be a life change or I can work for a transaction and I can get them to get me a result. You can punish long enough. I mean, you could just run laps all day. You could make it tormenting. You could make it all sorts of things. And then if they do right, and, or I could hold praise from them. And then when they do exactly what I want them to do, I can give them a little bit of pat on the back and start praising them. Or you can remove things and just spend time on their investment, who they are, and you just make a determine it's not about my credit. There's, there's choices you have to make in that. We did win 8-0 to zero against Minneapolis Patrick Henry yesterday. <laughs> But I will tell you why. This has been a big step. I have a group of guys that have always known losing for 20-some years because that's what they believed about themselves. But they changed. I remember at the game, we were sitting there, and they started looking at the other players. So I had to stop, and I said, what are you doing? Well, we're just seeing if, seeing what? Seeing how you're going to be different based on what they are, or are you going to be what you've been practicing? 
You're going to have to make a decision right now. You're either going to do what you know how to do, you do it the best that you know how to do, and you do it from what you are, and you make them do what you're doing. You need to stop looking at what they are and conforming to what they're wanting you to do. So they're going, and then all of a sudden, so we got up 7-0. Now they did everything to try to at least get a goal so they didn't get shut out. So they were just overloading the top, and my defense was getting worn out. And I put a guy into sub, and he's been with me a while, and, and there's, you know, with, with high school soccer, you got two months to work with them. So it's not like you have them for a whole year developing all their skills. So you just work with the skills that they have. And I asked this player, I said, no matter what, do not go in and try to get the ball from number 10. You stay three feet away from them and just stay in front of them. Do not go in and try to get the ball. It will frustrate them, and they'll end up messing everything up. And it came to the point, this number 10 took it down the corner, and my player's just standing there. And I could just tell how awkward he felt with all the fans, everybody cheering, and he wanted to do something so bad. And he didn't. And it wrecked everything for the other team. It all fell apart, and all these players came down, and it got destroyed. Because to play offense, you need the defense to get baited into what you want. That's how shame works. It comes in offensively and it wants to bait you into responding to this action. And the moment it does, it comes around and takes over the whole backside and they end up scoring on you. See, the, the, our world is built on that. But when you can withstand and say, I don't have to move, and you could feel, I've, I've never seen a kid, you could feel the pressure. This is dumb that I'm just standing here. And they're just standing there looking at each other. There's like eight seconds of pause, and they just stood at the end just staring at each other. It was the funniest thing I've ever seen. You could just feel the pressure. He's like, Coach, this is stupid. You know, it's like, and you know what the parents are saying? Go get the ball, go get the ball. And he just. <laughs> and that's what God's saying. Don't get baited into the shame. Let it come down. It's going to come in. Once you start wanting, it's going to come in like a flood, and they're going to do everything to bombard. But if you just stand your ground, they have nothing they could do unless they bait you in. And you're baited because you're pressured because you're probably not doing it right. But when you're confident and you trust the one that's your source and you hold it, all of a sudden he became the hero of the game. Now see how the whole thing starts turning. And so the enemy does this. Oh, that was just a great moment. Shame makes a vacuum where glory makes a fan, if you take a little motor and if you hook a battery up to the red and the black, either end, it doesn't matter, the motor will start turning one way or the other. One direction it creates a vacuum. The other direction it creates a fan. What shame wants to do is it switches the polarity of your design to get you to cause you to suck in to receive. You don't care, the moment you turn, here it just comes. It's going to suck in from wherever you're at, the environment. You're, you're feeding the identity from this vacuum, and it sucks. It just keeps everywhere it goes. But then grace comes in and switches the polarity. And all of a sudden you become a fan. But see, a fan also sucks. But it sucks from your source. And it begins to blow out, and it begins to blow out, and it begins to blow out, and that's how we influence. So glory creates you into a fan by reversing the polarity of your thinking. 1 Samuel 17, 28. I want you to see how David responded to shame. David was a man after God's own heart, 
who understood the rejection of his family, under, understood the rejection of what it felt like to be isolated out in a field, but he discovered something in God that God valued him. And we don't know how that actually took place, but when he says he's a man after God's own heart, it, it, was, it was the same that God and him had this synced belief, this synced shared way of thinking, this synced value system. So what David was concerned about throughout his life was my pleasure towards God, but he was never shamed in that he thought himself bad when he sinned. He grieved out of, a, out of that positive guilt that I've hurt my father, but he did not destroy himself with the words. And he was not repentant towards who he hurt, even though I know he, was, he loved people, so he was, but he never went and said, oh, I've hurt this person. Oh, I can't believe I hurt this person. Because then your focus is all on that person's validation of you. The person who validated him is who he hurt. Then he ended up inadvertently hurting other people. So do you understand what I'm saying? I'm not saying he didn't care about other people. I'm saying the core of where he grieved was whenever he hurt the source that he came from. Because people had no value over David. David did not care whether you liked him or didn't like him. David did not care whether the enemy liked him or didn't like him. David did not care. All he cared was, Father, do you love me? That's all he cared about, and that dictated his life. So you see this in his behavior. But let's look at this in 1 Samuel 17, 28. His father invites him in to go bring cheese and food to his brothers that were at war, correct? Jesse, his father, sent him with food to go bring to the battlefield. Why is he going there? To bring food that his father told him to bring to the battlefield. That's it. Shows up on the battlefield, he hears Goliath doing his rant, and he says, so what's the prize if we kill him? Simple question, right? What do we get if we kill him? See, that's confidence. The moment some, a problem is there, our mind should go, so how are we going to fix this one? What's going to be the reward? What's going to be the joy when this is done? What's the joy on the other side of this? And he says this, now Eliab, his brother, the oldest brother, in that heritage, who deserved the blessing of being the king out of Jesse's family? Eliab. Who got the blessing to be the king? David, the outcast that wasn't even invited to the family's party. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was aroused against David. Why was Eliab angry to David? confidence. He wasn't condemned. He wasn't broken. He saw hope. He saw life. He saw freedom. To someone who lives in shame, they don't see that. When you come in and see that, there's an anger because they cannot see what you're seeing. And the only thing they could do is to destroy you to protect so they don't hurt anymore in their shame. If we all stink, we're okay. We don't want one to shine when we're all stinking we got to destroy the shiny guy. So the anger is aroused against David. Why did you come down here? And with whom have you left those few measly little sheep, that worthless little job you have in the wilderness? The few sheep. I mean, think about this whole measurement thing. Everything is stripping him. Not only are you coming for wrong reasons, but your job is so minuscule. You just clean toilets. And you only get two. I've done six. 
I mean, think, look, watch what's happening here. How can I degrade David's soul down? But it wasn't the brother. It's the spirit of shame and that influence of sin through his brother that was stripping David. Now, as long as the brother wants to live in it, then he's going to reap the percussions. But it's not authored through them. It's authored through sin and Satan's influence through a shamed heart. That's the control. Why did you come down here with, you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride, the insolence of your heart, for you've come down to see the battle. You know him? You haven't even met him. He lives with the sheep. How do you know him? How do you know what's in his heart? Because that's what's in the brother's heart. The brother wants to see what's going to happen. The brother's afraid to go fight. The brother is looking for something. And so it's got to be, i got to put it on someone else. I mean, that's like the hypocrite. You, you sit and go, well, how can you be so hypocritical? You're saying that to me and you're sitting there doing the same thing. Right? We try to have that conversation. You can't have a conversation with the shame person about what they're accusing you of. Because they're not accusing you to value you. They're accusing you to strip so they don't even care what they're saying. They don't care if they just went and spilt the water. They're still going to blame you for being an idiot for spilling the water. How dumb can you be? You spilt the water. I know, but you just spilt the water. That's different. You spilt the water. You're a dumb idiot. But you spilt the water. And the conversation goes, have you ever had this conversation? It goes back and forth. But you spilt the water. I'm an idiot and I spilt the water. But aren't you an idiot then too? So we're both idiots. No, we're not both idiots. You're the idiot. You're the dummy. You're the stupid one. You're the... It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a goofy, psychotic conversation because shame does that. Their conversation is wholly to defend their own pain by destroying someone else. That's why there's no rationale to the conversation. There's no logic behind it. So don't try to have a rational, logical conversation when you're dealing with that because there isn't one. That's why you just... But look how... So let's watch how David handles this. And David said, what have I done now? What have I done now? In other words, this ain't the first time this round has gone on. What did I do now? Has anybody been there? <sighs> okay, now what did I do? I just, my dad sent me with the box of cheese. Look, I got cheese. I'm from Green Bay. I, I didn't come to spy out the Vikings. I got sent from Green Bay with a box of cheese, and I'm just handing it to you. There's nothing personal. There's no attack. There's nothing. I have no motivation in my heart but to bring you the cheese. You don't have to put it on your head. You don't have to bring it to the game. It's just cheese. Eat it. It's from a cow. Milk. Dad sent it. Here's the card. Here's the card. Dad said, here, bring this to them for the cheese. I was with the few sheep. The few of them. The, the two sheep that I'm responsible for, because that's all I can handle. I was out there and I got called in to bring you the cheese. Here's proof. Look, I have a legal contract. They don't care. They, they don't care. Because you're exposing their shame. Because you're asking a question they should have been asking. Who is this guy? Why did we pick the team for the Vikings this year? We know what they're like. It's never changed. No one will say anything. We can fix this. So he goes on, and David said, what have I done now? Is there not a cause, a reason for me to be here? The cause is not the battle. The cause is I was told to do something. The cause is the cheese. I'm here for the cheese. Is there not a reason for me to be here? I was sent here. I didn't make it up. 
And David said, what have I done? Isn't there a reason for me to be here? And then he turned. See, he wasn't thinking arrogant. I'm here because I'm going to take on Goliath. Because you guys stink. I'm here to bring in a new quarterback, a new team, and we're going to redo this whole deal. That's why I'm here. He didn't come for that reason. He came to bring cheese. Then he turned from him. Listen to this. He turned. He didn't keep them in sight. He turned from him and said the same thing. And these people answered him as the first ones did. Here's what will happen if you do this. All right? Do you see that? Shame God is sending you something. You don't even know what the big picture for your life is a lot of times in that scenario. You think you're just bringing cheese. But he's opening up something. So the moment the enemy starts bringing in and attacking you over the darn cheese, realize there's something much bigger going on here and turn to go back and ask the question, so what's the reward for doing this? What's the joy in doing this? And all of a sudden you start seeing a path, but shame will keep you down here. Grace takes you over to here. We're going to finish this up next week. This is a big subject. And it is, it's not a complicated one. But it's the thing that we have warned with for years and has been lost in certain complex conversations that have made the simple issue going on in our hearts so complicated we don't even know how to unpack it, so we mask it. We understand grace, right? You've been here long enough to know what grace is. We understand what love is. We've been here long enough to know what love is. But sometimes the application to what, what's going on, we don't really know where that actually fits. Where does that salve actually go to deal with this issue? That's what we're unpacking. But to this week, your, your objective is to turn. Don't argue about the cheese. Just turn and continue with what God put in your heart because there's something bigger.